1: everyone. Welcome to episode 228 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So this week, uh, Nick Whitaker, our Director of Research and Trading, is back filling in for Matt. So thanks again for coming back on the show, Nick.
2: Yeah, of course. Always good to be here.
1: As always, we will quickly review the month-to-date and year-to-date performance of the major market indices that we track. This data is from Charts and as of the market close on November 29th. S&P 500 Index up 8.5% for the month and up 18.5% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 7.2% for the month and up 6.9% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 11% for the month and up 36.2% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 8.8% for the month and up 2.6% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X united States ETF up 8.1% for the month of November and up 8.3% for the year three-month treasury rate sitting at 5.45%, the two-year treasury rate at 4.64%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 4.27%. So, moving on to big headlines and current events from this past week, I think the biggest thing, Nick, was uh, that, sadly, Charlie Munger, uh, who is who was Warren Buffett's uh, right-hand man, passed away earlier this week, and he was 99, But he helped uh, Warren uh, run Berkshire Hathaway, obviously uh, had a tremendous impact in the investing industry, uh, is viewed as one of the legends, really, uh, when it comes to investing. So, um, you know, our industry, I'm sure, is saddened by that news. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he did a lot of good things for for the finance industry, I think
2: yeah he did he's uh, i think one of the reasons the, the uh, you see so much news coverage on it is a lot of times some of the the moguls and some of the big names and on wall street and, and finance they might not be the the most likable or you know have a bit of of an ego to them like some of the big hedge funders and whatnot and and uh charlie munger and and obviously warren buffett it, they don't really have that same kind of aura about them they they seem pretty no. down to earth but also just incredibly successful and um so yeah there's there's been a lot um a lot of good research and gra- I've, I've read a bunch of great great quotes this week from from charlie yeah. And so
1: yeah there's uh, no shortage of uh you know great you know uh, quotes from from Charlie, so if you want to go ahead and take a look at those, just uh, throw it into Twitter or Google or whatever, and you'll yeah. be able to, to find a bunch of them. So some yeah. of them are pretty comical, too. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah,
2: he, he definitely, uh, he had some sass to him at times. Yeah, he had a very, sense
1: of humor to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Last but not least, the U.S. dollar fell to a three-month low on Tuesday this week, uh, which was further fueling stock gains that we've seen. And, you know, Nick, we've kind of been pounding this table really all year that in order for stocks to continue higher, we needed a a weak dollar because there has been a a pretty uh, strong correlation, inverse correlation between the U.S. dollar and stocks. Um, So, uh, the dollar continues to weaken and stocks continue to march higher. Um, Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, First thing I had, Nick, uh, something that we've mentioned a couple times this year. This was a tweet from, uh, yes, the Nancy Pelosi stock tracker on Twitter. Uh, And this was from November 16th. And they said, alarming news. Senator Tommy Tuberville, whose net worth is approximately $16 million, is betting against Tesla. Tuberville recently invested $50,000 in Tesla, $190 puts expiring on December 15th. And again, just to kind of pause there for listeners, Nick, uh, you know, when we're talking about someone buying options and buying puts, Uh, Specifically, if you buy, let's say, as Tommy did, a put option on Tesla at one hundred and ninety dollars per share, that gives Tommy the right to sell Tesla to somebody else at one hundred and ninety dollars per share prior to December 15th. So essentially, it's making a bet that Tesla's share price is going to fall between now and December 15th. Because let's say uh, Tesla you know, falls to $150 per share by December 10th. Tommy can then send or sell Tesla shares to somebody else at $190 a share and buy Tesla back at $150 per share. And he just made that $40 per share profit, right? Um, so it's a bet that, that Tesla is not going to perform well uh, you know, over the next month or so. They continue to say that the unsettling practice of politicians leveraging positions over companies they legislate promotes a critical discussion on the ethical implications of whether such speculation actions should be permissible in public office. And I'm still kind of amazed that we're still having this conversation, Nick. I mean, it's I am. It's, a, not, it's a bit.
2: It's a bit ludicrous that the conversation is still you know, going and on. there's, there's yeah. been
1: several examples this year of of yeah. of you know members of Congress trading options and buying and selling stock on companies that they regulate, like that they directly have oversight over. And and, prior prior to major
2: news being released, too.
1: Right. And in my opinion, that's a huge problem. So I'm still kind of shocked we're still having this discussion. But at the same time, I'm not because we're talking about the people that, you know, vote on laws in this country (laughs) uh so uh maybe maybe we should we shouldn't be so surprised but i mean and it's not this isn't a democrat thing this isn't a republican thing it's a it's It's a political it's both yeah
2: right they're both incentivized to not pass legislation that allows them to bet on stocks that they have inside information on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. it's Both both parties do.
1: If people want some entertainment this weekend, take some time and Google, you know, the net worth of of these politicians prior to them going into office and then after uh, office. So it's – it's, it's or, or yeah,
2: or Google, or Google, how much money they make on certain trades or, or, I mean, there's, there's yeah, all there's kinds. a bunch
1: of, a bunch of websites out there that, you know, that, that, that post you know, all of yeah. these trades by, by Congress. And there's even an app now, Nick, that you can like open up this app and it's a trading app and you can literally trade the same way these politicians trade. And obviously it's going to be delayed because, yeah. you know, that time. Uh, yeah. until they're mandated to to file those trades is a little lagged yeah. but you can yeah. literally you know and you know buy and sell the same things that these politicians are are, are buying yeah. and
2: selling so um yeah yes. just I just so, thought it was interesting so for people who are curious they the politicians they do have to report or they're supposed to report when they uh, I think it's 30 30 day lag I could be wrong on that. you're talking about it but they do have to report, on on the names that they invest in um but there's been some speculation that there are a, a decent percentage of politicians that just they just don't report it they just like just within 45 refuse, days yeah, just 45 days okay yeah they just don't report it so it's interesting to see like some of the ones that do report or like the you know nancy this this uh researchers obviously called the 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 Nancy Pelosi stock tracker. Nancy Pelosi is one of the ones that (laughs) is just brazen with it. (laughs) Not Um, even trying to hide it. She's not even trying to hide it, right. Uh, But um, she reports it, but there are other members of both parties that you look at their net worth and you're like, we know they're invested in the stock market, yet you you look at the history of their transactions and there are none. It's like,
1: wow. And some of them, I think like Pelosi in in particular, you know, you look at her performance over the past, you know, two decades has been better than like 95% of the smartest investment
2: managers in the world, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It helps when you, when you know, it's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Yeah, it she literally. It sure uh, at, at times has the crystal ball. And people, I was. Yeah,
1: it's funny it, you it, said that. I was just gonna say that. We always talk about having that crystal ball. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know.
2: That's it. And people. And another thing, listeners might be thinking about is, oh, okay, well, why don't why don't people just follow what they do? You can, but most of the time, by the time you get that forty-five days of information, the the gains have already hit it's the already stock. Happened. So you yeah. you can buy, but you'll you'll probably end up underperforming using that. Using that strategy, right? Exactly,
1: and and the same thing on the sell side. When you know these politicians sell, you know, or close out these positions yep. again, it's a forty five day lag. So you know, a lot can happen within forty five days.
2: Is yeah. I mean, think about forty five days ago, what people were talking about in the market and how you know, stressed uh, certain segments of the media uh, were about you know where the performance was. So a lot of changes in, in, a, in a month and change. So, yeah, uh,
1: moving on. Next thing I had, Nick, was a tweet from Bad, Brad Freeman on uh, November 21st. And this was about NVIDIA's earnings report. So NVIDIA, largest semiconductor, um, you know, in the publicly traded markets, absolutely had a uh, amazing er- earnings report, right? um just a couple numbers for you here, Nick. They beat revenue estimates. Uh, they beat uh, earnings before interest and taxes estimates. Um, you know, so and and these are all double digit beats. They beat revenue estimates by, you know, 12.5%. They beat earnings before interest estimates by almost 19%. Uh, they beat uh gap earnings by 22%. Um they beat earnings per share estimates by 61%, and they guided for the next quarter and the next couple of months uh, higher than expectations, right? Yeah.
2: Um, That's the big one, too. That's
1: yeah, one. and and, I, and this next chart, Nick, is, is wild to me. I'll have Jenna throw this up on the uh, show notes and the YouTube page, but it shows NVIDIA's uh, Q3 revenue every year since going public. And... They just reported, obviously, uh, a week or a week and a half ago, Nick, and year over year, their Q3 revenue is up 206% year over year. And this chart is just like kind of wild. It's like, yeah. you know, this bar is almost going off the page here. Yeah. And why do I bring this up? This is, to me, a perfect example of a stock pricing in positive developments in the future. So from January 1st of this year, Nick, through November 20th, which was the day before earnings, Q3 earnings were reported for NVIDIA, the stock was up 245% year to date. Okay. And pretty good. (laughs) And after this amazing earnings report, I don't know how you could get much better. The stock was down almost 1% the day after the earnings report. So, this is a really good example of, you know, at us as investors need to remember that stock prices are a representation of what happens in the future. Not about what's going on right now, not about the earnings report that just happened, not about things that have happened in the past, but it's all about the future. And again, this is just my personal opinion. The, you know, triple digit gains that we've seen in, Companies like Nvidia this year—it's because people are forecasting these types of earnings reports going forward. So, um, you know, I don't think we any of us should be surprised by the strength of
2: you know Nvidia at this point in time. Yeah, no, no, not at all. It's this uh, the street was almost expecting them to come out and and beat across the board. I think if they didn't. If they didn't beat as substantially as they did, I think the stock would have been down and even a little bit stronger. Um, right. Two two quick points. One, uh, just to let uh, listeners and viewers know that when we're talking about these past two names, Tesla and Nvidia, it's not a recommendation for or against these names. We're just bringing up examples uh, to talk about uh, bigger bigger picture stuff. Um, and the second piece is. Uh, this this second chart you put up here, where it shows the Q the Q three revenue uh, since going public, uh, I I've talked to people in the past and they they've asked a, a good question uh, about you know what's the point of going public and you know why and um, this is a good a good chart to illustrate that and it's it's access to the capital markets that allows you to build and grow your business and scale your business at, at a more substantial rate. Um, without access to the public markets. There's no way you see this kind of revenue growth for for really. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say this type of revenue growth, but this type of revenue growth, including the fact that we're talking about $18 billion, you know, the, the substantial um, actual quantity. Um, um, allows you to scale allows you to take on debt, so uh, it's a good kind of chart to illustrate that point. Um, yeah, thanks for
1: thanks so, for bringing that up. It's just the pool yeah. the pool of money <laughs> grows yeah. substantially when you know yeah. anyone, virtually anybody, can invest yeah. in, in in a company's
2: stock and you know provide capital. Then yeah. just you and, know, yeah, think about like is. a like like an Amazon, for example. You can start. Once you have access to the debt markets, now you can, and the capital markets, and you're public, you can start buying up little small companies, tack on acquisitions to really build out, and then all of a sudden you're adding their revenue to your profile, and it get those those types of transactions are a lot easier, um, whenever whenever you're public.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, great point.
1: Uh, Last thing I had, Nick, was a kind of just a brief summary of a talk given by Morgan Housel on November 2nd in Detroit to the CFA uh, Society. And this summary was written up by Peter Lazaroff, who has been a guest on the podcast before. And Morgan was speaking about why people like predictions and misunderstand risk. So this was right in my my wheelhouse because I I'm uh, a strong advocate against market predictions, and uh, you know this this really uh, hit home with me here with with what Morgan had to say. So uh, he starts off by saying, Morgan shares two reasons why predictions will never go away, despite the horrible track record in the financial industry. First, it's exciting to predict change. It can be extremely lucrative if you're correct. So, we're always going to be drawn to predictions. And we saw this, you know, in the great financial crisis, you know, people were predicting the 50% market correction. And those people who predicted that and got it right are still reaping the rewards from that, right? They're still getting media time. They're, you know, They have a lot of followers out there on on social media, so they got the audience. They captured that
2: audience. Movie movie rights.
1: Movie rights, right. Uh, Second, there's a lot of discomfort in the uncertainty that humans feel from the idea that the future is inherently unknowable. And predictions, even if incorrect, reduce that discomfort. One really important point that Morgan makes is that the financial industry, as well as many other fields like politics, medicine, etc., are reasonably good at predicting some parts of the future, but they are terrible at forecasting the surprises, which tends to be all that matter. Events from the past 25 years that truly moved the needle in the economy and changed the world were surprises like 9-11, the Lehman Brothers collapse, and covid common denominator of all three of these is that nobody saw them coming. These once in a decade events are always going to be impossible to predict. Risk is what's left when you think you've thought of everything. It's great to analyze all of the risks in front of you and come up with a probabilistic analysis of how they're going to impact you, particularly at the individual level as you think about the risks to the personal finances. But then you have to accept that the biggest risk is what's not on that paper. And it's always been like that. You can state with certainty that the biggest economic event over the next 12 months, five years, or 10 years is something that nobody in the world is thinking about. And with all these examples of risks that nobody predicted, they seem obvious with the benefit of hindsight. Um, So I have nothing else to add there, Nick. I thought it was a really succinct summary uh, by Peter of... You know, kind of what me, you, Matt, others in our industry yeah. think about this. Um, you know, we like to uh, have predictions pretty much in, in everything in life. Right. Because we don't like uncertainty. Um, you know, for example, like going into a golf tournament, you know, I have a, you know, a, a, a golf partner that he comes and plays it. My member guest, I play at his member guest. His name's Chad. You know, weeks leading up to it, we're like, hey, how are you? How are you playing? How are you? How are you playing? How do you think we're going to we're going to play? And it's like all of that. None of that matters. It's just yeah. it helps with discomfort. And and that's why, you know, I was able to sympathize with this article so much is <laughs> uh, because I realize it in my in my day to day life. And it's no different yeah. for for the markets.
2: Yeah, 100 percent. And I think. There are so many examples of this. If you look at most major market corrections and major major market corrections and recessions, most of the time they're triggered by events that there's no way you could you could figure it out. So right. I encourage right. listeners to to google it and read about it, read about recessions and I mean you can go all the way back to like the 1600s of, you know, economic drastic economic changes just kind of happening where it's like there's no way to predict that kind of stuff like covid right so right
1: yeah and actually it would be an interesting exercise if we go back nick and you know before all these major uh shocks to the system if To see what you know the consensus politician trade was to see if they were you know in you know groups liquidating before these events because uh that would be that would be pretty pretty interesting so maybe we'll run through that exercise here over the next couple of weeks
2: Mm -hmm. oh yeah
1: um i'll turn it over to you
2: uh the first i have a couple a couple quick pieces for us today Uh, the first one's on energy demand and capital discipline uh, it's a tweet from Markets and Mayhem on 11/27, uh, stating the following: Emerging markets oil demand is rising as U.S. producers remain capital disciplined. 2024 may bring a firmer demand and ever tight supply. Will we see triple-digit oil again? Um, again, predictions. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um I really I really just wanted to bring this up just to remind listeners as to what's going on with the U.S energy markets and specifically U.S energy producers remaining capital discipline that's the part that really sticks out to me because it's so so important uh, for these companies that they remain capital disciplined because that's what uh shareholders and and Wall Street wants they don't want these U.S producers to pump too much oil out of the ground they don't want The US producers to use uh, more debt and erode their balance sheets and erode their cash and their cash discipline, so they don't want to see their free cash flow going down and. That That is one way that you can bring the oil price down is, of course, by increasing the supply. But to increase the supply, you have to increase the amount that you're pulling out of the ground. You have to put some more money into it. You have to go and and, uh, and get, get out in the fields, build more rigs, et cetera, et cetera. So there is that kind of balance for U.S. producers that they have to walk that tightrope, so to speak, of remaining capital discipline, keeping shareholders happy, um, pulling enough out of the ground to realize the profits, try to keep the you know, the oil price somewhat where it's reasonable. Obviously, OPEC is going to impact that more than U.S. producers. Um, but this is, certainly goes into that. So I just want yeah, to kind and, of bring that up. You know, well, we have a chart in, here that we, we can throw up for you guys as well.
1: And at least in Dayton, um, prices uh, are sub $3 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. think I saw like $2.90 the other day. So um, not too bad uh, as of as of right now, but like like you said, um, it's anyone's best guess as to okay. where energy prices are going to go and what that
2: impact is going to be on you know prices at the pump. Yeah, I think I think for the producer, for for the individual, that's obviously tough. For U.S. producers, I, I from a from an investment perspective, from a shareholder perspective, um, I think this is a good thing. From from an investment perspective in U.S. energy stocks, right? You want to see them remaining capital disciplined, um, I think, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's the consensus on the street as well. So, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, the next piece I have is a historical chart on Fed tightening, and this is research from Urien Timmer. Uh, he's head of macro strategy at Fidelity. Uh, and he says, I, I love Urien's charts. They're really cool. Um, he, he kind of has his own way of building these charts, um, and I've, I've used a lot of them in the past. So we'll throw this up for you, and then I'm going to read what he wrote here. Uh, if the Fed has reached the end of its tightening cycle, as is widely believed, what is next? As this chart illustrates, history offers a vast range of potential answers from aggressive dovishness after the 1980s 89 peak to the back for more hawkish hawkish path following the 1959 peak typically an easing cycle starts relatively soon although the fed has from time to time stayed sideways for a while i'm gonna pause there because that's that's where the market that's what the fed is discussing and that's i think where the market is is still trying to figure out is what is that sideways how long what does uh longer for long? uh, uh, uh what does Hire it mean for to, longer. yeah thank you thank you higher yeah. for longer um yeah what does that actually look like that's that's where the market is is really trying to uh uh figure that out um where where is that on the chart right um uh Continuing back to what Urien said, uh, we'll see how it goes this time, but interestingly and heartening, and, and but interestingly to see how diminished the market's expectations have become over the prospect of a large pivot. The market is now expecting the Fed to give back around 150 bips of its rate hikes over the course of the next few years, which seems reasonable. Uh, and we'll throw this chart up for you, and it shows the the bright blue line there is the average. So you can kind of see that once you reach the peak, most of the time, it's pretty quick back down um, most of the time. Now, the Fed in terms is obviously of interest rates Yeah. In, ter- in terms of interest rates. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're not mm-hmm. talking about the stock market here. We're talking about yeah uh, the interest, the interest rates. Um, and this is I think this is a contributing factor why the market is, is obviously so hyper focused on what does higher for longer mean is it going to mm-hmm. be six months is it going to be a year it's going to be three months
1: right so. because that has um, a broader effect on the economy and the availability to uh, take out money out for loans it has an effect on uh, housing prices it has an effect on mortgage rates um you know, it has an effect on what you're getting paid to hold cash in your bank account or a money market account or a certificate of deposit. So it really does have an effect on a lot of areas of people's lives, um, you know, and and, and usually uh, when we have a easier monetary Policy meaning lower interest rates. Uh, it incentivizes people to, you know, borrow money and spend money and have that circulate throughout the economy, which is a good thing. Um, so uh, again, anyone's prediction as to what exactly happens with uh, interest rates. I don't even think the Fed knows what's going to happen, you know, with interest rates or yeah. what their decision is going to be in a couple of months. Um, so. Uh, you know, it, it is a really good piece, and and Urian does provide uh great great content, so yeah,
2: pretty cool, pretty cool charts. So, uh, thank you, Yurian. Uh, the last piece I have is uh from our our friend Charlie Bilelo Bele- uh, on U.S. housing affordability. Um, he says, uh, The following U.S. housing affordability is worse today than the peak of the last housing bubble, the median American household. Would need to spend forty-four point seven percent of their income to afford the median-priced home, which is a record high. And there's a, there's a chart that we'll will uh, throw up on 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 the screen for you guys. Uh, this kind of falls right in in line with the Fed rate hikes. And why is the Fed why has the Fed hiked rates as as much as they have? It's to combat inflation, um, and obviously. Uh, That's had an an adverse reaction uh, or or an adverse effect, I should say, to individuals' uh, bottom line, so to speak. And that's you can really you're really starting to see that in the housing market because the housing market, as much, has not um, had that fall off that some people were predicting. Um, It's stayed relatively strong. So you add that with higher interest rates and higher inflation, price of groceries going up. this chart is pretty representative of of what's going on. So, um, even regardless of of what we've seen and what the Fed was studying with the employment situation, which is still relatively strong, um, yeah, you know, there's consumers still have been hit to some to some degree.
1: Yeah, I mean, just when I first read this, I mean, I was kind of like, "Wow, that's that's a lot, right?" The yeah. median American yeah, yeah, household will need to spend you know, almost 45% of their income to afford the median priced home. So, you know, the middle, you know, the middle Mm -hmm. of that. Um, But it's interesting, Nick, because if you look at this chart, you know, prior to the great financial crisis, we were right around 42%. So not that far off from where we are now. And, you know, I think housing is an interesting topic because I think there's a of recency bias. Like if we just oh, yeah. take the GFC out for a second, where would we be in the housing and real estate market if if the GFC never happened, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and it's because there was just this one massive event that happened that influenced that industry and that market for over a decade. And I wonder I'd actually be interested to see this chart go back to like the 1970s. Yeah, to yeah see. I want to
2: see it. I want to see it back further as well. That's because almost I think every a lot time of, I see a chart.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of the housing conversations and prices, yes. like a lot of it I think is it's recency bias because we had this big event that forced prices down and interest rates down super low, right? And, and, and that has almost become – the new normal. So when people see stuff like this, they're like, "Oh my God, this has never happened before. This is crazy." Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, you know, prior to oh seven oh eight, it probably wasn't abnormal to have you know data like this.
2: Yeah, I think it. I think it's it's definitely on on the high side. But um, yeah, the, obviously, the the great financial crisis really reset the housing market down. And particularly, you know, as you're looking here and thinking about just kind of like household budgeting and whatnot, you're thinking about that that 30% range. Um, I also think it depends on the market you're in, you know, and and regionally. I mean, um, you know, you're you're Act going to be on that 30% if you're in in some of the major cities, you know, Chicago, New York. San Fran, San Fran, right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? oh, gosh. So yeah. it, it, it depends. It's this data is always interesting. Um, it's a nice, it's nice, uh, data to see, tr- to try to suss out the big picture, but that's another thing with, with housing and, and inflation, it, it can get very regional, um, and, and impact different regions pretty drastically. Um, yeah. so yeah, we, sure. we, we try in the industry our best to, to understand, you know, the, 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 the median and, and the means and, and, and that side of things, but when it gets down to, you know, all the way down to the individual, that's where, um, you know, it just depends on the individual situation, right?
1: Yeah, and that's kind of a, a good lead-in into our uh, financial planning topic of the week, Nick, which was a tweet from Ben Carlson on November 17th. Uh, Jenna will put this up for our YouTube viewers and our uh, podcast listeners and our show notes. He says, why there won't be a housing market crash in one headline. And he shares a picture from Business Week. And the title of the article is, the share of Americans who are mortgage-free is at an all-time high, almost 40% of U.S. homeowners own their homes outright as of 2022, many of them baby boomers who refinanced when rates were low. And I thought this was really interesting, Nick, because, you know, for the past however many years, couple of years, everyone and their mother is predicting a housing market crash because of Mm -hmm. how quickly home prices have skyrocketed after after COVID. Right. and I can tell you from from talking to a lot of baby baby boomers about this specific subject, a lot of them aren't rushing to sell their homes that that are paid for, right? So if yeah. you're waiting for housing prices to collapse, you might be waiting a long time. And again, I think a lot of this has to do with recency bias. That the last housing market recession, you know, was the Great Financial Crisis, and not all housing slowdowns are going to look like that prices aren't always going to fall by 40 to 50% or even, even more. Um, I mean, just think about it. Why, why would the majority of Americans sell their current home that's paid off to buy number one, a more expensive home and number two have a more expensive mortgage rate or a mortgage rate at all. Um, you know, I just don't see that happening unless there is another catastrophic, you know, economic event that would yeah. force people to tap into the equity of their home and that's really getting down the rabbit hole but yeah. um you know it, it wouldn't surprise me if you know these these housing prices to use something that you said earlier stay higher for longer.
2: Mhm. Another scenario to To play out for listeners regarding the baby boomers is okay you have a house that's paid off why if you want to downsize because that's typically what you would see is you know maybe someone wants to downsize or they want to move to more of a retirement location what what's the downside of just holding holding on to it for a few more years until rates come down right right? why wouldn't you do that and then at that point okay you still might be paying a a higher price for the home, but at that point you can finance it much cheaper. Um why wouldn't you just kinda wait if if you can probably should. So yeah, I, I agree with the article. I don't I don't expect I don't expect the housing market to fall off a cliff. And we've been talking about this for years at this point with people asking us questions about, you know, what's up with the housing market and is it gonna fall off and I think we talked about, you know, expecting to see a little bit of a pullback, which we did for a while, um, not drastic, but a little bit, and, and it's kind of gone back up a um, a tick, uh, but I think a lot of it, uh, like you mentioned, gets down to demographics and COVID kind of accelerating some of the, um, some of the younger generations push into home ownership. Um, yeah, that, that. You know, pushed kind of jumped the housing prices uh what feels like kind of astronomically but if you smooth that out over a curve it's i suppose reasonable while it's while it's frustrating uh for most most of us out there that's the reality of economics unfortunately <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. and i am yeah, trying to f- pull up some data on why charts nick maybe we can uh discuss this maybe next week or sometime later this year, but just to look at the relationship between, um, you know, mortgage rates and the, you know, average, you know, price of a home, right. Um, you know, because that, in my opinion, we,
2: we've definitely had, we've definitely seen research on that, but I don't, I don't have anything at the top of my head, um, bill for that but we've seen charts a separate podcast topic but yeah i mean charts in the past about that because if rates go back to
1: you know rates go back to zero i think you're going to have a a spree of a buying activity because there's there's been you know a lot of people that you know are waiting waiting
2: waiting for things to get a little cheaper before you know buying a house it makes a big it makes a massive difference and that's what that's what it gets down to on on the individual side of things is when you're buying a house at 5, 6, 7% versus, you know, 3, 4%. It's drastic. Your mortgage payment is, is drastically different. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I get it. It's tough. It's tough. But uh, Yeah, I got, you know, I got a lot of friends state, that are, you know, yeah. looking
1: around and that are yeah. renting right now and want to, you know, buy a house or buy a piece of property to start, you know, building that equity. Yeah. Um they're just like i just every
2: house i look at it's like there's no way i'm paying that for you know for what it is yeah yeah exactly yeah i i dealt with that in the charlotte market um back in this a few years ago 2019 i felt i felt like that where i'm looking at these homes and like wow this is crazy and uh it's really funny because those same homes that i was looking at are a hundred percent more expensive now uh, maybe right. not a hundred percent, but drastically more expensive, and I'm just still scratching my head. So I was thinking, there's no way it'll keep going, but it it did, yeah. and that that's that gets back to that comment I made about the you know the median household and all of that. Regionally, it really it does have an impact where it it affects every region, yes, but the degree to which it affects your region uh, can be can be somewhat drastic. You know, if you're looking right. in in somewhere in the Midwest outside of a major city relative to you know, like i mentioned charlotte or chicago or those major cities it's going to feel much much more drastic because it probably is <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. for sure
1: um Really quick, uh, just wanted to throw a quick note in there for listeners. If uh, anyone is interested in creating your own podcast, uh, please use the promo code Jessup Wealth to get your first month of Blueberry podcast hosting for free. To choose the ideal plan for you, use the hosting estimator on their website. And again, you can receive your first month free with promo code Jessup all lowercase with no spaces. Uh, anything else we want to mention before we sign off for the week, Nick? Uh,
2: no, no, I don't think so. Hope everyone had a had a happy Thanksgiving and uh, enjoys the uh, the holiday season coming up. Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: definitely, uh, you know, crazy to think that we are going to be entering uh, the last month of the year here uh, tomorrow. So uh, happy December to everybody, and we will be back with you uh, on the next episode of the Independent Advisors podcast next week.
0: questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.